Hi, and welcome to another edition of The Brand Called You. It's a podcast that speaks to some of the most fascinating people from around the world who have wisdom and stories to share. Um, today's guest is no exception. Eva Grazel is a professional storyteller. And um, I have to say, I've known Eva personally because I was a professional storyteller and she and I would meet on the circuit at festivals, at museums, at conferences. And uh, every time I would meet her, I would be in absolute awe by the way she had this capacity to hold an audience. And, you know, she could have a room filled with screaming children. And just by the way she did her interactions and her storytelling, um, she could held them captivated. And I would watch her with fascination and learn from her. Um, we also did shop talk in those days. Do you remember, Eva? We, um, sure do. Would, we would talk about how awful the children were, how awful the people that booked us were, um, complain about our bag of instruments, our props, schlepping around our sparkling costumes. Um, but nonetheless, we both made a living out of it until one day the unthinkable happened. Um, Eva was diagnosed with tongue cancer, late stage. They gave her 15 months to live. 15% and chance of surviving actually. 15, 15, 15, a 15% chance of chance surviving. Chance of surviving five years. And um, here I am 23 years later. <laughs> But Eva, what, what struck me, being sensitive to metaphor as I am as a storyteller, is in order for you to survive, they had to cut a third of your tongue out. And you were totally silenced as a storyteller. Um, and the reason I wanted to talk to you isn't because of the tragedy, but what your story reminded me of is not just that our bodies have the capacity for regeneration, but so do our souls. And you regenerated in a way like nobody else. You turned what could have been a, a reason to, to mourn for the rest of your life into something so special. You started to tell stories about oral cancer, educating dentists, people. I started to tell my story. You started so I didn't tell, you know, the beauty of telling my story to healthcare professionals is that I don't tell them what to do. I'm not a healthcare professional. All I do is tell them my story and they feel deep in their own guts. They could be raising the bar on screenings, on patient education. You know, we hear a lot about a lot of cancers, but we don't hear a lot about oral cancers. There's a big taboo, you know, about speaking about cancer in your mouth. There are different reasons that people get it. Uh, the A lot of people have heard now about HPV, the human papillomavirus. And that's a main reason. Mine wasn't HPV positive. It was one of those random, quirky things that happen. Could you could you take us back? Because I think you were 33 at the time, am I right? Quite young, I never smoked. And I remember one day getting a call from you saying, Lisa, you won't believe this, but I have tongue cancer. And I, I would love to hear, take us back to the story of, of, of how it began and, and how you learned. Well, for two years, I was seeing dentists and doctors about a sore on my tongue. It was like a canker sore, but it wouldn't heal. 
And the doctors kept saying she's young, she's never smoked, she rarely drinks, it's nothing. They treated me for trauma. They also did a biopsy. And the biopsy, unfortunately for me, was misread. So everybody treated me for trauma. They told me my teeth are sharp. I'm irritated. One doctor said, I talk too much. Can you believe that? How rude. Are you serious? Yes. And the sore just, they kept saying to me, if it doesn't get better, come back. And one of the major messages in my presentation is I don't know what's going on in my tongue by them telling me if it doesn't improve, come back is asking me to self-diagnose myself. You see, I kept thinking it's getting better. It doesn't hurt so much. It's a little smaller, but actually it never went away. And I was developing into a late stage cancer in front of everybody's eyes. And then finally I got this earache excruciating. This is because the tumor was now sitting on a nerve to my ear. And I go to my GP to tell him I have an earache. And the doctor said, you know, let me prescribe antibiotics. You have water on your eardrum. And I said to him, look at my tongue. And he said, whoa, you know, are you seeing an oral surgeon? Are you seeing a dentist? I said, yes, I've seen two and two. He said, let them take care of it. Let me take care of the water on your eardrum. It was constantly this battle for who's responsible and what's really going on. And then I got to the point where I I literally couldn't function. I wasn't eating normally. I wasn't speaking normally. I was in constant pain. I wasn't sleeping well. And I finally went back to that oral surgeon and I said, we have to do something. What is it? And he said to me, your tongue is small. We don't want to cut it up some more unless we have to. He said, but the next step is another biopsy. I said, let's schedule a biopsy. I did for one week later. And then I got into my car, Lisa, and I was thinking to myself, maybe I should look elsewhere for answers. Don't ask me why. It took me so long to think that maybe I should go elsewhere for a second opinion. I called a family friend in New York City. I was living in Pennsylvania. And this, uh, this friend was a, a, a plastic surgeon, but he specialized in cleft palate. So I figured he'd know what's going on in my mouth. He had no idea. He said, have you been to a major medical center? I said, I didn't even think of it. I had no idea that what was on my tongue was remotely serious. And I called the doctor he recommended. I got an appointment three weeks later. And this doctor said I was stage four. I really- What was your reaction when you got the news? I really don't remember much after that. I think my mind, I'll tell you what I felt. I remember how I felt. I felt like this 18 wheeler truck was driving full speed from my toes up through my body and crashing in my head. That's all I remember. I awoke in my mother's bed and I was in her bed for like 24 hours until she said, honey, your surgery's in two weeks. I'm driving you home now. Pennsylvania because you need to prepare for this. And the first thing I did when I got home 
was cancel upcoming storytelling performances. The next thing I did was celebrate our daughter Elena's fifth birthday party. And the hardest thing was telling friends and family. That's when you heard about it. And, and you said to me, the doctors gave you a, a very small chance of surviving it. And why is that? Because it was late stage already. It had already spread to my lymph nodes. He felt an enlarged lymph node in my neck. I didn't notice it. I wasn't feeling my neck. But anyway, I had 40 lymph nodes removed from my neck during surgery and three of them had cancer. So I had this radical neck dissection. I had reconstruction of a third of my tongue. They reconstructed my tongue because the tongue allows us to articulate and swallow normally. So even though I don't taste or feel on this side, I can swallow normally and, and speak articulately. It's an extraordinary surgery. And by the way, if any of the listeners know anybody who is coping with oral cancer, I speak to people all over the world. I'll give them hope. I'll help their caregivers call me. Well, I wanted to, yeah, I wanted to talk to you about how you turned it around um, because, you know, first you were telling folk tales and, and your own original stories, but suddenly um, the stakes got much higher for you. And how did you come to to retelling your own story and to, I mean, how did this come to you? And give, give us the process. I had an extraordinary outcome. I'm not disfigured, I speak well. And I thought I can't let what happened to me happen to others. It felt like an obligation to do what I can for others so that they don't end up like so many people I saw and still see today. There are a lot of surgeries that do not turn out like-minded. And that's for a lot of different reasons. Doctors who are, don't do the surgery very often, uh, or new to the surgery. There are and lots it, of different reasons. You don't mind me, me saying so. Um, I think some of your success was due to the fact that you had the means to go to specialists, to go to the best doctor in New York. Um, the, and the wherewithal and the creativity um, I think about people that are, you know, don't don't have the insurance or or not capable, you know, or and they it, don't want to make the drive. They don't want to drive two hours to a hospital. Right. And my advice is always get a second opinion. Number one. Number two, listen to your body. Your body knows better than any of those doctors. And if you're not getting answers that satisfy you, you must go elsewhere. And, and then and lastly, especially when it's dealing with your face and which could steal real quality of life. I mean, if you don't speak well, you could lose your job. You could lose friends. So this is about driving those extra couple hundred miles in order to get the best care possible. Did you have to do speech therapy afterwards? I did. I did. I had to learn how to use my voice well because this whole side of my neck was fried. I don't have a thyroid. My vocal cords were fried. And now sometimes my voice goes out unexplainably. I get hoarse very easily. So I learned how to use my diaphragm a little bit better to support my voice and also to articulate words. Like I used to speak like this. My tongue was like dead in my mouth. 
and I learned how to strengthen my tongue. There are exercises I do. I do an intraoral massage, Lisa. I mean, when my fingernails are clean and short in the shower, I literally massage my tongue, my gums. It feels fantastic. I feel like I'm stimulating that whole blood supply that was minimized and, and treated during radiation. Can some of the, the nerves regenerate in that side of your tongue or is it done? For me, it really hasn't regenerated enough for me to feel. So I don't feel food. Right. So I really can't chew on this side because if I chew here, I literally chew my tongue. So I want to hear about, um, I know when you, when you got diagnosed, oral cancer was still, a lot of dentists were still not highly educated on it. And, and I think you were one of the pioneers in going to dental schools, for example. Uh, how, how did that come about? And what were some of the responses or reactions from, from some of the, the early, early uh, talks that you gave to dentists? Well, one day I was in New York seeing a, my surgeon for a follow-up appointment. And I saw a public bus go by. And on the bus, there was a picture of a woman that looked like me, dark hair, young. There was a sore on the side of her tongue. She was sticking out her tongue. It was exactly where my sore was. And there was a sign that said, there is a painless way to know if this is anything serious. I said, I don't believe this. Somebody is raising awareness about the disease that I have. I said, I figure she's an actress or they just made this poster up, but I am calling this organization. And it said ADA, American Dental Association. When I got home, I looked in the yellow pages, looked for their number, called this 800 number. And I got a voice message. I said, you're doing some campaign in New York City on oral cancer. You need to know about me and I want to help you. Well, guess what? They called back and then I spoke to someone else and someone else up the ladder and someone else up the ladder. They did a video about my story and then they asked me to speak at a national conference. It was the first time I told my story and it was in front of a huge audience, 9,000 dentists. They gave me five minutes to speak. After which the feedback I got, I said, I've got to start telling my personal story. Mm -hmm. So I began to craft it, Lisa. Being a storyteller, I was able to start to tell my story and then weed out the less important details and really focus on the meat, on the wisdom, on what's really important for people to hear. And I started slowly. I told my story at Rotary Clubs and in high schools and at women's groups. And then I started to speak for local dental hygiene associations and dental schools. And during this time, I began to really craft my story. There were times when I was too clinical for a less clinical audience. There were times when the audience wanted more of the clinical. And I learned how to really, really tailor each and every program to the audience. Mm -hmm. And as I got better, I started making a name for myself in the dental world began to speak all over the country, all over the world. And I developed an organ a, a, 
a website called Six Step Screening, Six Steps to a Thorough Oral Cancer Screening. And I used to take these posters that I designed and give them to dental professionals to say, put these up in your dental office. I mean, Lisa, when you go to your dentist, are you educated about oral cancer? I have a story for you, which is I recently went to a new dentist because um, like you, I have a bit of a thyroid disorder. And I'd heard that root canal work can cannot be so good for an autoimmune condition. So I went to an alternative dentist, alternative. He was the first dentist in my entire life, I'm 61, that ever screened me for tongue cancer. It was shocking to me. The first dentist ever. Yeah, so obviously. Just so you know, the American Dental Association in the guidelines of what is to be done in a dental checkup, oral cancer screening was mandated in 2018. And then in 2019, they added to check the neck for these HPV associated oropharyngeal cancers. So here we are in 2022 and most people that I meet and tell them my story, they say, what, that's a thing? I never heard about cancer in the mouth still to this day. And so it's amazing. I, I have a couple of questions I'm dying to ask you. I mean, the first is you, you obviously continue to tell stories that are unrelated to tongue cancer, I, I, I believe, right? You still perform other stories too. Is that accurate? Well, in every presentation, every keynote presentation I give, I always tell a story of folklore that has nothing to do with my personal story. Because yeah, I, I would be curious as a fellow storyteller, how this experience, you, you know, I know, I know that for me, I only started to even begin to get somewhat competent what I did when I started telling my own personal story. And I wonder if you had the same experience that somehow connecting to something deeply emotional, even if you're, even if, if you've had that experience once, you kind of bring it to whatever story you're telling. I mean, did you have, did it transform the way you told stories? I suppose. It did. Kind of- so what I noticed is that as soon as I told my personal story, judgments dropped. You know, when you walk out on stage, Lisa, they look at what you're wearing. They look at your hair. They look at your age. They judgments are made of some kind. They listen to your voice. And then suddenly you tell your personal story and all those judgments fall away and they see you as a person just like them. They see you vulnerable. They see you imperfect. And then it's so much easier to believe what you're saying and to be pulled into your story, whatever story that may be. So if you're a salesperson, as soon as you tell something about your personal story, they learn something about your work ethic, your values, your wisdom. And then suddenly they want to know more. They want to work with you because they feel something about you. And I feel that telling a personal story is, is critical in creating connections. It's funny. I never, I, never, trust. I never thought of judgment, but I know the neuroscience is there that if you connect to, to what is an emotional region in your brain, for example, if your amygdala activates at exactly the same moment, that emotional region in the brain of your audience is activating. And they, it's called neural coupling. I mean, they've researched this. So you're, you're really basically setting off 
a kind of heightened empathy in your audience. You're taking over the minds of your audience by doing it, which is fascinating. But I, I never considered the judgment part before, which is also very, very interesting to me. Um, and then I think you've also written a series of books on cancer for children. Tell me about that. When I reached my 10-year cancer-free anniversary, I had to mark it. And I couldn't think of any better way than to help children like my own cope with cancer. And back when my children were five and seven and I was diagnosed, there was, I couldn't find books I could read to them that really satisfied what really needed to be said. And I feel that that's about addressing feelings and emotions letting children know that what they feel is okay, but it's not okay to hit, but it's okay to write in a journal or to call these people or to draw a picture and to give children the means to express their feelings so that they are emotionally healthy. I have to say that to this day, my daughter still has PTSD because we never coped with a lot of those internal feelings. Everybody was so focused on me getting better. Nobody thought about how my disease was affecting my children. How, how can you articulate a little more about that? How, how does it indirectly affect, how did it affect your daughter indirectly? Well, I remember taking a spoonful of soup and putting it to my lip to see if it was too hot for her. And she said, I don't want it. We said, you can't get sick from sharing with mommy. And she said, I don't want it. We told her she couldn't get sick, but to no avail. She would ignore me. She would stick her tongue out at me. One day she kicked my shin and I sat her on my lap and I said, what did I do? Why are you so angry at me? And she said, bad mommy. She stopped kissing me for two years after I recovered. She could not kiss me. And I know why, Lisa. She was very intuitive. She knew she could lose me. And she didn't want to commit to another day of loving me. Such a painful story. And so not only are you dealing with trying to get physically well, but you're now dealing with the loss of this connection this at a prime time with your daughter. And your son took it differently? Totally differently. He didn't want to leave my side. He wasn't going out to see friends. He just sat and played with his Thomas the Tank engines right at my feet so that I wasn't alone. Mm -hmm. And I kept saying, go out, be with friends. You need to do this but he didn't want to. And, and how, how are they doing, or at least how, how is your daughter doing years later and as a grown woman? I mean, both of them have become very empathetic individuals. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because they saw people helping me and it made an impact on their lives. They're also very comfortable with speaking to and including anybody with physical or emotional challenges. Yeah. It comes very easily to them. And I think that had to do with going through my cancer with me. I mean, I, I sort of have a philosophic question, which is, I mean, um, you said it transformed the way you told stories, but how did this experience um, alter your perspective on life in general? It's a big question, sorry. I think that I learned that it's not about the length of our lives that, you know, two-year-olds die and 
it doesn't matter. What matters is the breadth of our life and what we're doing with our lives. And I realized that I wanted to spend time every day making a difference. I don't care what other people think. It's, it can be small and I don't have to share it, but I felt like, you know, it all happened one day, Lisa, when I went to a funeral and it was for somebody who died of cancer in our community and tears were just coming down because I knew it could have been me. And then the spouse of the person who died stood up and said something profound that I'll never forget. They said, every day I woke up and thought, what can I do for her to make her day better? And every day she woke up and thought, what could she do to make my day better? And it made me think I could do a lot for myself to make myself happy, but to do it for somebody else brings you even more joy. It just magnifies the joy that you feel. So I would recommend for anybody that's feeling down and out about the whole COVID experience or any, any challenge that's keeping them confined or imprisoned, know that the way out is doing for others. And you'll find that it uplifts your soul in a way that nothing else can, because you're needed and people need you. You just don't realize it. I can't think of a better way to end. <laughs> um, I really wish you continued success um, in everything you're doing. I'm, I'm so proud of you and um, I'm a fan all over again. And I really wanna thank you for this. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you for listening to the brand called You Videocast and Podcast platform that brings you knowledge, experience, and wisdom of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Do visit our website www.tbcy.in to watch and listen to the stories of many more individuals. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for the brand called You.